Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I have a special guest, friend, and former personal mentor, Jeff Ma. Jeff is best known as a former member of the MIT Blackjack team who won millions in the mid-1990s. Jeff's success was the basis of the main character of a New York Times best-selling book, Bringing Down the House, and the highly successful movie, 21. Because of his focus on data and analytics, Jeff's success at the blackjack table translated well into his prolific entrepreneurial career. Jeff and his teams built and sold Circle Lending to Virgin, Citizen Sports to Yahoo, and finally 10Xer to Twitter. Today, Jeff and I discuss how his experiences at the blackjack table helped him build valuable companies and how he knew when to pick up his chips, leave the table, and cash out. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff Ma. So, Jeff, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Just giving us some time, try to share some of your stories with our fellow founders. I know a lot of our listeners are already going to be familiar with your work on the, the MIT blackjack card counting team and certainly going to know best-selling book, seeing the movie 21, right? It was really, really cool. And uh, I certainly recognized you as the dealer in that movie. That was fun. But I think what most people don't know is how you've taken that talent, the data and your ability to understand and use analytics to make really great business decisions. So I'd love to hear about your journey using your skill set to build and sell companies. But before we get in that, I have to tell you, right, you're a sports guy, I'm a sports guy. When you agreed to be on this podcast, I didn't think twice about bumping Mark Cuban from this spot. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so thanks for having me. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting that you bring up analytics because I do think that um, analytics and data are in many ways often counter to being an entrepreneur um, because early on um, you have very little data and analytics and you ultimately have to make some pretty uh, interesting gut decisions. I think one of the things that, um, and I've been talking about data and analytics for, I don't know, 20 years now or something like that. Like my first speaking event that I ever did, um, you know, Billy Bean from the Oakland A's was on the board of a company that I started. And, you know, he was always really interested in the blackjack story because in his um, speeches that he talked about, he often used the comparison of card counters to what he did at the, you know, with the Oakland A's make meaning like making these like really important incremental decisions um, where small edges make a big difference. And so he used to always use the card counter analogy, the MIT card counter analogy. And then when we met for the first time, you know, he was obviously very interested in meeting because he used to use that analogy. Um, and then he encouraged me to try to go do, you know, public speaking or paid speaking. Um, and I actually went with his agent at the same time and, and used his agent and got my first speaking engagement probably in like 2004 or something like that. But um, the point of it is that when you when you do a lot of this speaking on data analytics, you start to evolve your own thinking about it. And I think one of the most important things that um, data analytics will tell you is it will help you think and make better decisions, not always 
via data and analytics, but via a better framework to make decisions. And that framework is really about sort of dispassionate um, decision-making and an understanding of the cognitive biases that we all have that make us make bad decisions, right? Like the idea that we're all uh, averse to losing, which is called loss aversion. The idea that we place too much, um, you know, uh, probability on things that we can imagine, which is called the availability heuristic. The fact that we tend to favor inaction over action when we think it may lead to loss, that's called omission bias. But these are all things that obviously, if you have data analytics to make decisions, you can overcome these. But really just understanding these from a framework of what they are and how they color our um, you know, decision-making emotionally is something that I think that I've learned a lot um, over the last few years. Yeah, I guess for me, when you started that comment around when you're an entrepreneur starting a company, right, you don't have a lot of data in front of you. And so it's really passion and your ability to see something that others don't see to give you the motivation to go out and create something like that. So maybe those things, at least early on, are counterintuitive or don't necessarily inform each other. Before we go further, one of the things I like to do is say how we know each other. And mm -hmm. so um, I don't know if you remember it differently of how we met. So I had tried out for the San Jose Sharks. And so through that experience, I got a phone call with Kevin Compton at one point, right? So he was one, one of the owners of the Sharks. I don't know if he was at Kleiner at the time or he had jumped to radar. What year Partners. was it probably? That would have been 96, 1996. So he was still at Kleiner in Okay. 96. So I think somehow, you know, he was gracious enough to give me, you know, 30 minutes. And I think maybe it was a few years later when I made, it was definitely a few years later when I made the call, but he, I think he suggested, oh, you got to meet Jeff Ma. So you guys clearly knew each other. And then you agreed to meet. And I remember because, you know, I lived in San Francisco for only a few years, but the, it was the Towns End Cafe, right? I think mm -hmm. that was the first yeah, time we have a lot of meetings there. Yeah. Great, great. They make the greatest eggs in the world, but whatever. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that was our first time. And then what kind of struck me, Jeff, is that you were just willing to give time, advice, bounce ideas through for me, company after company, right? You were an advisor, always giving me more credibility than probably deserved just being on that advisory sheet in, in pitch decks. So really appreciate that willingness to help and friendship throughout the year. So thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. And um, obviously it's a two-way street. I mean, I think working with entrepreneurs as an advisor, it, it's a great way to sort of keep your mind sharp and also um, network. And, you know, obviously you've had some great you know, success and now are in a place where you can, you know, give back to those people that helped. I mean, I think the, the bearing the lead on that whole idea of how we met is, is Kevin Compton, right? Because Kevin is an incredible, um, VC, probably one of the best investors over the last 30 years in Silicon Valley that not a lot of people know because of the fact that he is a little bit under the radar. I mean, you, have um you talk to any real investor in silicon valley and you mentioned kevin's name and they're you know they're going to be impressed that you know kevin and you know i've stayed in great touch with him over the years i'm actually seeing him tomorrow for lunch um but you know for for entrepreneurs i think the lesson that i would learn from kevin comes from 
sort of a rare interview and I don't know if you can still find this on the on the web but they they have a there's an interview which where he does with some small um, college and they ask him a little bit about like VC as an asset class and how successful it is and he makes a point like oh you know I can't tell you how successful it is an asset class but I can tell you for us it's very help it's very successful and the reason is that we stick with the invest with the with the entrepreneur. We fundamentally believe that the reason that companies fail is not because the entrepreneurs aren't good or because the idea is not good or anything like that. It's because they run out of money. And so we try to stay with them as long as we can. And he has really shown that in the two companies that he's invested in um, that I've started, um, where he's been very um, helpful and supportive along the way. Um, and, um, he's an incredible human, I think is really the biggest thing about Kevin. Um, anyone that's had the chance to spend time with him, um, and, and have him, you know, help them will, will attest to sort of how amazing Kevin is. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I clearly don't know Kevin to the extent that you do. He was just gracious enough to take that first call to introduce you. And then I've touched base with him a couple times over the years as, you know, companies would start to form. But yeah, he's always been incredibly supportive and available, right? Yeah. Where many, many aren't. They're just too busy. So this podcast really is about uh, how do we educate our fellow founders around M&A? And so as much as I mm-hmm. kind of want to jump into that, I don't want to forget like the amazing things that you were doing before that and, and the story. So I think maybe a good way to approach it is, is there you know, a moment or a story when you were on that MIT team that you thought, wow, this is really, this is a startup. This is what I'm going to bring to the business world. Is there some interesting moment that you can think of? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, so there's like a couple things. There's a seminal moment where I talk about like losing, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and two hands of blackjack. And like, literally it was, you know, five minutes. And that was a really interesting, um, crisis of confidence um, crisis of, of sort of everything, right. You think about giving up and you think about that, that gut punch and that sort of uh, stubbornness or stick to itness that like led me to continue playing blackjack. Cause that happened about eight or nine months into my time playing blackjack. And I hadn't played for about seven years. So that moment is one that I think a lot about sort of the, the level of fortitude that it took to continue to play and I think a lot about startups being an incredible, difficult journey um, where there are many times that I think that people would think about giving up. Um, you know, they're not all the up and to the right or all like the huge success stories. There's a lot of of challenges um, that come up along the way. And I, I think one important attribute of an entrepreneur is, is almost the stubbornness to want to continue to succeed and, and almost like this irrational confidence at some level. like you know, obviously now we see this, like, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about the, you know, the FTX story and the, um, the, the woman, uh, Theranos, Theranos, Theranos. story. Yeah. Yep. The, yeah. The interesting thing about those stories is like, I think people from outside of the Silicon Valley world will look at that and be like, I mean, how could people be duped like this? How could like people, how could people be so stupid? And, of course, they should have done in cases like this more diligence and like you, you do put that a little bit on the investors. But the reality is that there is this myth or there is this characteristic 
of entrepreneurs that is sort of this almost like irrational confidence or this irrational belief that is uh, and, and can border on the point of um, I don't want to say fraudulent because that's not that's not the you know obviously no one wants to be fraudulent but the idea that you are um, so focused and you know on a dream that many don't believe that you can accomplish right that's the sort of idea of what it is to be an entrepreneur so I think I think there's a fine line between you know a uh, visionary entrepreneur and what ends up happening with like the WeWorks and the Theranoses and the FTXs of the world right and yeah. and I don't I don't I know that there, you may say fine line, there's, there's clear lines, you know, as an entrepreneur, I know what I would never have done. Right. And like, I know, you know, but, but you are trying to sell yourself and you're trying to sell the dream of what you're building. And sometimes you are probably overreaching on what you're selling um, because you're trying very much to convince investors and people that this dream that you have is real. Um, so anyways, that's stubbornness. And then I think the other one that that really for me is, you know, people have been asking me like, oh, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, I'm not sure, but I've been sort of identifying the main themes of what I want to do. And one of them is to just work with great people and work with people. And, and I think ultimately that was one of the things that I missed when people used to ask like, oh, do you miss the blackjack days? I would say like, oh, I, I don't really miss playing blackjack, but I miss that camaraderie. And I think during COVID we've, we've lost a lot of that idea of like camaraderie because everyone's working remotely. And I certainly do understand like, and believe in the ability to work remotely. And I think that's a great, it's a great thing that it's unlocked for a lot of us. You have two young kids and the idea of like commuting every day right now with two young kids sounds terrible. But what I do think we've lost is a lot of that like camaraderie where, you know, you have four or five people sitting around in a room like trying to get a startup to happen or trying to get something to happen. And that, that, that stuff I think has sadly kind of been lost since COVID and I hope it comes back. Yeah, I think it, it can come back and it's certainly vital for some small teams. I know my companies, I never really built beyond 25 people, but today, right. I have two partners and the three of us, we get in the same room and we work through the day and, and being able to celebrate the successes and, and have a shoulder to lean on for those gut punches like you talked about, that's what entrepreneurship is, right? Balancing highs and lows that happen in the same day and trying to have uh, the fortitude to go on. That's a great, great analogy talking about the history of losing money. But, you know, you're obviously sticking with a process, believed in the process. It's not a one-day event, right? This is a marathon. So there are a lot of parallels there. I kind of think of great companies and at least at the beginning, they've kind of hacked their way into some unfair competitive advantage. And that feels a little bit like what you guys were doing at the blackjack table, that you, you created your own unfair advantage that no one else was really paying attention to and you, and you rode that. Let me know what you think of this. So is going in every day to a startup, right, where you know you just, you've got to make progress, two steps forward, one step back, that's going to happen. And my partner and I were thinking about this. Is it like one hand to poker? And, you know, it's win or lose, but you're coming back over and over and over. And then eventually, right, if you're sticking to a process, a process that, that works and you're gaining more data and you're making better choices as you go, your opportunity for success grows. Is it anything like that? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the analogy with blackjack or poker in the world of startups 
um, I would say it's kind of the opposite, right? I would say like the idea is that um, you want to give yourself the opportunities to succeed. And in, in blackjack, that's, that's many hands, that's many opportunities. And with startups, right, you, you want to give your, your company a chance to succeed. So how do you create many opportunities for the startup? And so that's one of the, like from a financing perspective, right? I think that's one of the things that's very interesting, right? Because I was at a, uh, a VC event um, put on by Spider Capital, which is run by a guy by the name Michael Nero, and 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 um, Michael's a good friend. And they one of the sessions um, was talking a little bit about um, the idea of um, you know how you're managing your finances or your investment in this downturn that we're going through right now, right? And one of the things that you know, everyone's kind of, kind of talking about like layoffs and like, you know, reducing burn and all this kind of stuff. And I, and one of the things that occurred to me as I was hearing a lot of this was I was like, listen, this is like not just in a downturn, right? This is like how you need to think about managing your finances as a CEO of a startup period, right? It's, it's about financial responsibility, fiscal responsibility, not every startup is that story, like I said, of up and to the right and and no hiccups. And the reality is that you raise money and you hope that you will be able to raise money again, but you may not be able to for a while and at the time. And so your goal is to make that money last as long as you can, right? And and really give yourself an opportunity to, you know, make make that hand, right? That's the analogy, right? Like you, you want to be around at that blackjack table when that good run comes and, 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 and card counting, we kind of know when that good run's going to come because we're, we're counting cards, but the reality is there's, there's still luck and variance involved in card counting. And if you don't have enough money, um, to get yourself to the point where that variance becomes positive and you know, that, that expected value, um, gets realized, then then you're going to be bankrupt. And it's similarly with startups where you have to think very uh, responsibly and, and frugally um, as you think about, you know, raising money. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So yes, I, I was wrong. <laughs> it, was, it really is the opposite. And to me, in the early stage, there's a ton of financial risk, right? And you can mitigate that risk by funding these companies well. And we're talking about like, really venture world or angel world, but there are a lot of businesses that go in, right? They're self-funded and they've got to get to profitability quickly and grow maybe more slowly, more responsibly, right? So when you say, you know, fiscal responsibility and you match that with venture capital, we have clients that are backed by great venture capital firms that were told spend, 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 spend. And now in the downturn, they are not going to get more money from that venture firm. They're still doing a lot in sales, but they've just built up kind of an overhead that is not sustainable. So now you see a lot of layoffs and you see this with the bigger firms in the news, but it's happening to a lot of these smaller firms. And so there's some great assets, some, some really good companies that maybe shouldn't have grown the way venture tends to push founders to grow. Maybe what we could jump into is, could you talk about the three companies that you built, maybe with whom you built them? At least the three that I more know about, like Circle Lending, yeah. Citizen Sports. 
Yeah, so so circle lending was was started um, really primarily by a guy by the name of Ishii Shivani, who now is the leads junior achievement um, that program globally. Sure. sure. And um, Ashish was a consultant at Monitor Consulting in uh, in Cambridge. I don't know if you remember Monitor, but like they were like management consulting. Yep, yep, I do. Um, he had the idea of sort of democratizing financing, right? And that was the, the original idea he had was um, something called Be Your Own Bank, which was like one of the worst names ever, but it was... It was this, I, it sounded like a Swedish bank or something like that, Bjorn bank or something, but like, <laughs> yeah. uh, the idea was around human capital and human capital and human equity, right? Like, could you actually invest in another human? And you, you've seen it now, like there's like some other sites that have been doing this or some other companies have been doing this, but what ended up happening with that is, is he really thought about microfinancing more and about like peer to peer lending. And so what Circle Lending became was a way to lend money or borrow money to someone you knew to do a promissory note online and to set up a payment schedule, um, you know, online that just was automated, right? It sounds very, very simple. Um, but in, in, I guess, the late 90s, early 2000s, this was a novel concept, right? There wasn't really PayPal. There wasn't. Um, the idea that you could just do ACH transactions like that was new. There's no social graph. Um, and it was a very interesting concept. And, you know, my role was I was the founding CTO and built out all of the initial tech, um, made all sort of the product decisions on what we were doing. And, um, you know, we ended up selling that company to Richard Branson at Virgin. Um, I was long gone when we sold. Um, and Ashish really drove the company from, you know, sort of this peer-to-peer lending network to be something that actually was really around reverse mortgages and was something that really was used to run reverse mortgages. And I think that the greatest lesson that I had from Circle Lending was was really around the idea of just, of just you know, really being willing to sort of pivot. Um, we had like a very general um, concept, which was peer to peer lending. And uh, eventually over time, Ashish found really a, a way to sort of, uh, leverage a specific lending, um, you know, lending scenario, which is reverse mortgages. And, um, and again, like it, the company had like a reasonable brand at the time and Ashish is, is, uh, you know, he's very smart and very well connected. And, um, yeah, I give almost, you know, 99.9% .9 of the credit to him in that like i was there early and helped him build out like the early products and the early technology um but you know what's funny is that was like my first real like you know i'd had a job before in a in a golf instructional startup that called golf span so you didn't you didn't mention that one but that was probably the first startup that i was very formative in where we had like 15 of the top 100 golf instructors and seven of the top 15 signed up to provide exclusive. So like this was like back in the day, you know, Jim McLean, Hank Haney, Jimmy Ballard, Chuck Cook, all the big names. Um, and uh, again, like this startup was a, you know, a lot of the videos, a lot of the instruction were video based. And in the late nineties, video was super expensive. I don't know if you remember, and it was really hard to monetize, which is really incredible to think about now. Um, 
but that company ended up the assets were sold to demand media and they they used it to sort of like launch a lot of their you know golf brands and golf golf instruction brands and things like that um the the next couple of companies one was a company called um pro trade which is originally a way where we were trying to create a way for people to trade athletes like stocks and there's a company out there right now i think called mojo that's sort of doing something similar to this, taking advantage of the sports betting world um, and trying to launch this for real. And then um, and then we eventually pivoted that company to something called Citizen and Sports, right? Which we were lucky enough to, to sell to Yahoo. And then finally, I started a company called 10Xer, which was in the developer productivity analytics space um, that I was lucky enough to sell to Twitter and sort of leverage that opportunity to run um, data science and analytics at Twitter for three and a half years. That's great. Yeah, I remember ProTrade, and I think that's when Kevin had introduced us, and then you had made that pivot, right? So you obviously learned the pivot from circle lending, right? And that's a skill set, right, of great entrepreneurs to figure out, hey, if it's not plan A, is it B or is it C or is it D, and, and get through a process to figure out what is actually going to work as quickly as possible. And then, uh, yeah, I remember seeing you at a, at a trade show right after you had sold Citizen Sports to Yahoo. That was that was pretty exciting moment because I think they even announced it on stage or whoever was speaking at the time. Yeah, I think Car- Carol Bartz, who was CEO of Twitter at the time, yeah, announced it at it was at like, like the Sports Business Journal, yes, yes. like World Congress of Sports or something. It was it was a big deal, right? Yeah. And like, what's funny is it was a really small. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it was a very small deal for Carol Bartz to be announcing. Um, but what's interesting is the the main person who did that deal for Yahoo was Jimmy Pitaro, and Jimmy now runs ESPN. So it sort of gives you a good sense of like where where things are. Sure. So you have those two exits, and I think what I'd love to dive into, if it's good with you, is what prompted your decision to sell these businesses. Right? What did you see on the on the table that makes you decide? hey, this is time. And the reason I ask is we get so many calls every week of, hey, I have somebody interested in buying our business. Is this the right time to do it? And for us, you know, we're not the investment banker. We're just building the best M&A team for a founder. So our first step is, hey, let's figure out if this is truly the right thing for not only for your business and your stakeholders, but for you personally, what is this outcome going to look like? But yeah, would love to hear your decision process on those two, on the on the last two. Yeah, so I, I think um, it's interesting because I, one of the things I always talk about, and you know, knowing I was coming on to this podcast, you know, I it, it brought back a lot of the memories I have or a lot of thoughts I have around around M and A and around exits, right? Which is ultimately, you never. I think that anyone that's been an entrepreneur probably understands this better than people that haven't been. But there's two moments in time that people will always compliment you or will always like congratulate you as a, as a founder, right? They'll congratulate you when they see that you've raised a round of financing. And it's always funny because it's like, there's nothing, I mean, I guess some congratulations are in, in line, but it's like, it doesn't really mean anything. And actually like that just means like the hard work is, is starting, right? And so- External validation maybe, right? Yeah. Well, and also like, you you know, if you want to run the business, but like, it's not, it isn't to me, 
a milestone that should be like celebrated yeah. with any kind of anything beyond like, let's just go get dinner and celebrate yeah. the fact that we're, we're going to have jobs for a while. Right. The other moment is, is M and a, right. And I think it's similarly often a bittersweet moment. And I think people don't realize that because if you start a company with the idea of selling it, you're, in my mind, a soulless entrepreneur, right? Like you, that's not, that's not why. And, and people do this all the time. Like you see people talk about like, Oh, I'm going to start this company. And like, you know, I know, like I used to work for say Microsoft and I know that this is a, an area they're deficient in. So I think in the worst, they'll you know, be a soft landing. And like, I think that's a weird way to think about when you start a company. I mean, I think M and a happens and it happens in many different scenarios, right? Like I was once talking to Kevin Systrom and it was, you know, Kevin Systrom was the founder of Instagram and I was talking to him maybe, I don't know, six months after he had sold Instagram to Facebook. And, um, I remember we were having like a drink and he said to me, he goes, you know, I didn't start my company to sell it, but if someone offers me a billion dollars for sort of 18 months of work, like it's kind of hard for me not to, to look very hard at that. Right. And so, um, I think financial like security and like an outcome that just really makes sense for you financially. Um, that's one reason to do it. Right. And, and like no one, no one, you know, like people follow golf right now. Like there's all these guys taking financial security to go play in the live tour. Right. And you can't fault them because there is a certain amount of in life, like financial security is very, very important. And especially, you know, when, once that whole calculus changes, when you have children, which is like something that I have now, like I have children now, and it's like a different sort of financial picture. So I think on the top, is this, is this a life changing event for me that, that really financially, you know, sets me up? If that's true, that there's a different calculus that you probably want to go through the net, you know, the, the, the less easy decision really comes down to more of like, is it, this is, is this a good strategic move for me and, and the company and strategic means a lot of different things, right? In this case, like strategic could mean like, Oh, I'm aligning with a really good, uh, company that will help me sort of like, you know, better realize like what I'm trying to do. Right. And strategic could also be like in the case of, so in the case of citizen sports, it was strategic to sell to Yahoo because it was 2008. There was a really global economic meltdown that was happening and we needed to raise more money. And, you know, the, the outcome of selling to Yahoo was going to be a reasonable outcome for both our investors and our employees. And so with the macro environment and the options around us, the idea of selling to Yahoo was the best option, right? In the case of 10Xer, um, similarly, we realized that we needed to sell um, our product into the enterprise. And we were not an enterprise sales company. No one in our team knew how to do that. Um, one of my key employees, told me that he um, had just found out his wife was pregnant with the, their first kid. And he was a guy that like would just grind every day. And I was like, I can't make you grind every day. 
when we have this opportunity to go join Twitter and and really have a great work life balance. So what's funny is he, he he's he's basically been a Twitter since then because it's just been such a great work life balance and and a great you know situation for him. Um, and me as a CEO, I'm making that decision because I care deeply about the people that work for me and want to make the right decision for them. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that the people that we talk to, there are a lot of different scenarios. And one that we're dealing with right now is that this company has grown. It's got a lot of potential. But for example, they have never had a sales team. The CEO has done it the whole time. And to find a strategic acquirer or partner that has that sales team that's used to selling to the same customer will accelerate the growth of this company dramatically. And the way the founder sees it is, this is my life-changing, not le personally life-changing, but the company is changing lives of people and he wants to ha have as much impact as he possibly can, right? So when you talk about the soulless entrepreneurs building it just for the exit, I tend to agree in that the reason we go into this is to build something incredible and amazing and that's really fulfilling and that you're bringing people along for that journey and you're not really thinking about oh yeah there's a financial outcome in the end right you kind of know that your financial situation will well you're hoping that it will be better but it's that's not necessarily the goal so with this particular client that we have it's enabling his company to impact more people which he's really passionate about and then on the flip side the other thing that you mentioned we see a lot of people where you can literally change your life today. You can solidify the financial security of yourself and your family. And maybe that's an important, you're at an inflection point, like you said, people having families, maybe you're a little bit burned out. Maybe you see something on the horizon that is gonna introduce more risk into your business and industry. And so it's time to take chips off the table. So we see just a full range of why people decide, hey, this is time to sell. And frankly, one of the third ones is those investors. We see a bit of that of like, hey, we've been investing in this for seven to 10 years and it's time for a liquidity event. And so those founders are kind of encouraged, right, to look for those outcomes. So in selling those two businesses, was there anything that like really surprised you about the M&A process? Something that like our fellow founders would never know about until they actually sit there and go to sell their business? where the light bulb went on saying, I didn't know that would actually happen. I mean, I think there's a few things, right? Like I think when you get acquired by a company that's bigger than you and you think a little bit about the, the role that you're going to take in that next company, I think that's something that you should think a little bit about. Like in the case of um, when we sold our company to Yahoo, I didn't really have a role or see a role there. And so I actually like had a double trigger. And so if people don't really know what double triggers are, they're essentially like something that can be written into your like founder's agreement. Um, and the, the two things, because it's a double trigger, are change of control. So any sort of M&A event and constructive termination. And so constructive termination essentially means that they can't give you the exact same job that you had at your company. And so constructive termination almost always can be it's subjective and usually it's, I think, the board that kind of makes this decision. But ultimately, you can almost always say that there's constructive termination because they can't make you the CEO of that company or can't make you the whatever of that company right now. During the process, you may be deemed like a key person for the deal. And then you doing a double trigger will ultimately like kill the deal. So you have to be thoughtful on that. 
But in the Yahoo situation, you know, because there was two of us that founded the company. One was a guy by the name of Mike Kearns, and Mike now runs TCGs, you know, gone on like the turn turns digital group, got gone on to do amazing, amazing stuff, and it's just way above you know, my, where I've gone in my life. And it's just incredible to think about what Mike's done. Um, there was Mike and there was myself and Mike was sort of the key person. He was the CEO. I was at that time, I think not even like, it was, I was someone that people probably didn't understand what they should do with me. Like I was, you know, smart kid, relatively smart kid who'd, you know, had some technical chops having built and been CTO of a couple of companies had some product chops, but no real formal product chops at that time. Like I hadn't really been a product manager. I'd been like an early stage CTO making product decisions. And so, you know, product management is a, is a fascinating thing because it's probably the skill set that I think I have the best now, but it's taken, you know, years of like refining that skill set and like talking to people about it and reading for me to feel confident to say like, Oh, I know how to do product management at scale. Um, but anyway, so I was, I wasn't really like, I hadn't, had no idea what I was going to do at Yahoo. And so I executed the double trigger. And like, I remember I actually went to Kevin Compton to talk about this because Kevin was with the early first investor in citizen sports and pro trade. And I remember having like feeling very reluctant to have this conversation with him because I thought he was going to tell me I should go work at Yahoo. And he actually told me the opposite. He's like, I don't think you really have anything to learn there. And so I took a year off and, and, um, you know, just traveled a bit and, um, wrote, you know, I had written a book and, and was promoting the book and the movie 21 was coming out. So I was like, kind of like doing the movie stuff and like, or it had just come out. So, you know, I'd had this kind of like fun run and eventually led me to, to start what became TEDxer. Thank you for that story. I think in a lot of the M&A transactions that we see, the CEO who we're working with and the top management team, they're often deemed what you called key employees, right? Mm. And those key employees can affect the outcome of M&A. So to have a key founder be able to have a way to back out, not sacrificing not only the deal, but maybe kind of some of the financial elements of the deal, that's great that you're able to kind of traverse that because that's tricky land, but it feels like uh, that was obviously the right decision for you and, and the company. Yeah. For sure. I think if you join these companies, it's important to see yourself like, again, like you talk about the different, um, you know, people always ask you when you sell to a bigger company, they're like, oh, how long do you have to stick around? Like people <laughs> always say that. And, you know, when I was at, um, Twitter, it was actually the opposite. Like when I got there the first couple months, it was a weird place because when I sold my company, it was 52. And then as the stock was 52 at Twitter, and then when, you know, maybe three months later, the stock had dropped to like 16, right? And so that was a very challenging time at Twitter. And it was it was a tough time to be there and think about, you know, selling my company and all this kind of stuff to them. Um, but I, I eventually like loved working at Twitter. And I, I remember, um, you know, one of the reasons that I was interested in selling to Twitter is because I looked at the company and was interested in it. it was in, And I thought like, hey, this is a time now for me to take a job at like a really interesting company. And so like I, I took the job and, um, stayed there for, for quite some time and, and, you know, could have stayed a lot longer if it weren't for other things that sort of like transpired, but like it, it was a great place to work. Yeah. I think uh, we tell a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, selling a business is like putting a win on the board, right? It, as entrepreneurs, I tend to think of entrepreneurship as a career path, not like getting up to the plate and trying to hit a grand slam. 
So you're probably going to do this multiple times and selling a company is putting a win on the board, getting to work at Twitter in, you know, in an, in an important role is also putting a win on the board. You're educating yourself. You're seeing what it's like to manage from small company to, you know, more people. Yeah. There's a ton of learning that goes on and absolutely entrepreneurs need to understand if, if you're going to sell your business and go work somewhere, what is that environment really going to be like for you? Can you tell us about 10Xer? Yeah. So 10Xer was, it's interesting because, you know, the lesson that I really would take away from 10x or to entrepreneurs is like don't ever start a company just because you think you want to start a company and that's kind of what 10x or was 10x or was like my i had um started companies before with other people where it largely was their ideas and i sort of helped them make it work um 10x or was me saying like oh i want to go start something on my own which is my idea and blah 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 and so the concept was really, there was a guy by the name of Neil Robertson and Neil is a very successful entrepreneur, um, good friend of mine. He kind of brought this idea to me that he had had and he wasn't a very, he didn't want to really be operational anymore. And his idea was really around like game mechanics, driving uh, better motivation systems within a company, right? Like, so how do you use game mechanics and, you know, like incentive structures to get people to do stuff? And I was also like fascinated in the concept of just like money ball for um, employees, this idea of like using data analytics to help um, employees better understand like their own performance or in the case of managers, understand their, the people that work for them's performance. Um, and so I, um, you know, like the, the idea of 10 Xer was sort of marrying the two of them the idea that there was uh, data being stored in many different cloud-based services like Salesforce or GitHub. And if you could get access to that data and analyze it, you could learn a lot about your employees. And that was the very general premise. And so we launched it um, and, and really we're thinking like, oh, could we do a multi-purpose platform to do this? And then eventually we thought like, oh, can we center this around um, really around like uh, engineers and um, you know, developers and can we use GitHub and Pivotal Tracker and Jira to be the main data sources and whatnot. I mean, we, that's what we did. And we eventually, um, you know, brought it to the market and, and um, there were a lot of people that liked it and were interested in it. But ultimately, we found that the real sales opportunity was to bigger enterprises, bigger organizations that really wanted to know what their engineers were doing. Okay, so you sold that business and sold it to Twitter can you describe that exit? Was there any learnings on that one that really jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like the, the numbers that were reported, like I, you wrote this sort of number like of, of under 50 million and like, or just around 50 million, it like grossly overreported, right? Like it was like, a, and, and the funny part about it was, I, I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly, but like, you know, we do the sale and it was fine. It was a, it was a, it was a reasonable result, right? And, um, the day that they announced the deal, um, I think Ingrid Lundgren from TechCrunch called me and she said, Hey Jeff, you know, and I, I was like walking to go, it was like 5 30 AM. They had, you know, Twitter just kind of announced it. I was like walking to go do TRX, like a workout on Polk street in San Francisco and my phone rings and I see it's see Ingrid and I'm like, okay. Um, you know, she's like, Hey, I just saw this. Um, you know, want to report correctly. I know you can't tell me the numbers, but can you sort of give me directionally 
the right numbers. And I'm like, I just tell me, ask me something and I'll tell you if it's true or not. And she's like, it's been reported that it's under $50 million. And I was like, yes, it's under $50 million. <laughs> I didn't want to say like, well, 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 under, <laughs> under $50 million. Yeah. And she said, okay, great. So, and, and I think I said something like Ingrid, I wouldn't let you write something that wasn't true. And she's like, okay, so it's under 50 million. And then Mashable like rehashed her article and wrote, it's just under $50 million, yeah. which became like this sort of like moniker, like people were like, wow, yeah. Jeff sold this company for just under 50 million. And there's like, there's just numbers out there about it. And so it's, it's just hilarious how those things happen. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh my God, this is this unbelievable outcome for Jeff. You, know, you get wealth managers calling you left and right. It's it's just a one dollar is just under fifty is is under fifty million dollars too. So <laughs> okay, well thank you. Yeah, that was a copy paste on um uh on my part into our, no no into I, our I, I wasn't I wasn't giving you crap. I was just I was giving the world crap about how little people actually understand about when when these transactions happen. What's yeah. actually happening? Like the. Writers will write things because they want to write things, and everybody is looking for the headline, right? We had a we had a guest on that talked about how entrepreneurship is really celebrated in this country, and we're trying to celebrate the biggest win we possibly can. So the stories tend to outpace the reality. But Jeff, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I want to end with what is the one takeaway, if there is one, for you know founders that are thinking, hey you know, somebody's knocking on my door or it's getting to be that time and I'm going to have to sell or I'm, I'm going to want to sell the business. What's that one piece of advice you think makes sense for them to know? I mean, I think you, you have to look at it in totality and there's no one that can actually give you like the silver bullet answer to whether you should do it. I mean, there's your own lifestyle. There's um, like what you might be doing if you sold the company to someone. It's how much do you want to hunker down and keep going. It's, it's think a lot about your team and what your team, I mean, that'd probably be the one advice is really think a lot about your team because that's ultimately like, you know, your team is everyone. Your team is your investors. Your team is your family. Your team is the people that work for you. Like they are all the team. Um, and you know, your, 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 your team's family, right? Like this is just the whole thing. It's like really think about your team and how it might impact them. Um, and then make the best, you know, finance, ultimately financial decision. Right. And by, by what I mean by financial decision, you would think, oh, Jeff's just saying you should sell for the most money. No, no. What I mean is the financial decision ultimately is where the biggest upside is period. Right. And, 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 you know, all those other factors that we talked about, like work-life balance, culture, family, that should figure into sort of the financial decision at some level, but like it will come down to at some level finances. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Jeff, thank you. I really appreciate the time, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.